and uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and kick off. Jack, you do your phone call. There's no rush uh, in getting back. This is a lazier session than we normally do. We're not doing a hard reading. We're not going to charge through. This is kind of just generally having conversations around some of the stuff that's inside of AO4.4. So I'll kick us off and say, hello, thank you, and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, excitedly, on this Tuesday, we are going to be reviewing 4.4, the concepts inside of the first positive task of schizoanalysis. Uh, as we went through in 4.3, the negative task of schizoanalysis is uh, essentially a deconstructive one. It is to destroy the uh, narratives, the representations, the, the concepts that a person is using in order to believe they generate their desire and understand the things that are moving underneath it, the actual desiring machines. Now, these machines themselves, as the positive task goes on to describe, need to be nurtured. This is essentially the first positive task. It is uh, less a hey, we need to figure out what's wrong with you, and more a, hey, I need to actually outline and have conversations with you about what is making you work as a person and as a thing and as an object and what is actually producing all of these different elements. And 4.4 goes through that very, very, I think, succinctly early on and then gets into a bit more of a praxis portion as we make our way. So I just to go over a little bit of some of the early lines in it, uh, second paragraph. Uh, the consideration of all these machines, however, whether they be real, symbolic, or imaginary, must indeed intervene in a specific way, but as functional indices to point us in the direction of desiring machines, to which these indices are all more or less close and affinal. The desiring machines, in fact, are only reached starting from a certain threshold of dispersion that no longer permits either their imaginary identity or their structural unity to subsist. The, as we start breaking down narrative, we think we start getting to desire machines. But oh, this is where it gets so much fun, and there's so many questions I'd love to just sort of start with. But um, this this core thing is effectively this positive act. Um, it is a play where we start talking about um, you have ideas concepts, drives, attachments to mother, son, father, work, success, money, whatever it is, um, these machines, and they are as such, ultimately are the indicators, the symptoms that allow us to be pointed in the direction of the actual desiring machines. These indices, these things we've discussed, are a phenol. They are part of the generative line of desiring machines. As we've talked about, and as they've gone through this entire uh, book discussing, essentially desire can be kind of triangulated socially on the family line or the alliant line. Family line is, is tough to sort of conceptualize, but it is the idea of I and my wife gave birth to my child. There is a direct affinal line here with desiring machines, they're taking that all the way down to the base of things. I may have an idea, I may have a concept, I may have a representation. And the first task destroys these, recognizes them, breaks them apart. But ultimately, desiring machines are connected to them in an affinal way. They produce these. These these things are nonetheless actual. They're they're virtual, I suppose would be the right word. They're actual elements that are produced and 
as they are part of this chain, we're able to then begin following the chain, understand where the desiring machines are placed, how they're put together. And as they say, these instances uh, still belong to the order of interpretation. That is to say, the order of the signified or the signifier. We can't ever conceptualize a direct singular desiring machine. It's not really how one con concepting works. It's not how we work. It's not how existence works, I suppose. Um, so we're still going to be staying at this place. It's not about finding the desiring machine and pointing to it. If we can do that, that's not, that's not the base layer, but we just are trying to get as close as we can. It, these, these working machines, finding out their pieces, being able to sort of grok how they are connected to each other in the chain that produces desire that makes their way through. This play is towards that. And they use some early stuff of the deeply symbolic examples they've used from other books. The Dead Rat's Ass, um, as an example. The Bicycle, uh, Malloy's Bicycle, I think. Um, I've actually, I think both of those are Malloy. Um, the idea of that these things are things people attach to or they say that they're attached to or that they care about. And we see in their examples, obviously no one's attached to a dead rat's ass. It obviously means something else. But it's not so much that it means something else in the Freudian sense or the Lacanian sense that it is symbolic of another thing that it is a stand-in for. It's more that desire over time, emergently, through this lived mass experience of this subject, produced that and put that in line with all the other desire machines, which it then produces things off of. So think of a human being as a giant desiring machine ball rolling downhill, collecting pieces and things hook in and connect and magnetically and this boop. And then some other thing connects to that and to that and to that, this mass thing. And then at the bottom of the hill, we rock up to it and we go, Oh, dead rat's ass. Oh, that, that means your father. And it's like, no, that doesn't mean my father. That's this is connected in this specific place across all these various things. So it's, it's a really, f this is where we start getting to the really interesting play here of how these things work, how these things come together and how we can, in my opinion, uh, and this is purely me, my take on it, uh, use, utilize them to defeat the fascist within. Um, and I think there's a lot of power there, but outside of that, um, uh, they're talking very much the analyst analyst and uh, relationship as well. Uh, Jared, uh, you had something. Or Jared didn't have something. Oh, no, I'm, I'm good. All right. Uh, mute, give, give yourself a mute. Thanks. <laughs> um, I just saw you activating. I didn't want to make sure I was stepping over you. Um, so that'll be kind of my sort of start to kick us off here. Because I think there's a lot of questions that can be asked and a lot of directions to go. But I would leave that open uh, just generally to where would you guys like to go? Where would you like to have a conversation on this? You can type in. Uh, either of the chats, uh, how we're setting up, um, or you can just jump on in. This is an open, wide discussion. Do not hesitate to ask questions. None of us know who you are. You can look as much of a fool as possible, because trust me, I'm sure I do. Yeah. <clears throat> can you, um, you know, go over, uh, summarize again how the, um, the the concept of death, you know, plays into this process of um, you know, decoding and so forth. Oh, the death drive. Jesus Christ. Um, 
Yes, but give me a minute to think about that. Well, it's, it's done over a series of uh, paragraphs, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of material you need to answer that question, which starts on page 329 for me, where they're talking about, you know, they're talking about the body without organs and the death drive, right? Because like, if we put this in traditional psychoanalysis, just to get the, just to get the, what they're doing, right? What what are they up against in a manner of speaking? The death drives like this, more or less like the self-destructive aspect of them. The psyche right so like what what kind of drives the the unconscious and what if what afflicts the ego right are the two drives the eros and thanatos right and there's kind of a i don't want to say there's a hard dichotomy for freud but these two things interact in such a way that eros functions as basically this life affirming i don't want to say life affirming it's too nietzschean this life-focused principle, right? This life-focused drive that connects to libido for him, whereas Thanatos functions as basically a death drive, right? So you'll see the life drive, you'll see the arrows tied to things like reproduction, sexuality, and you'll see Thanatos. I mean, it's basically tied to it's it's death, but you got to understand, like, it's the kind of death that's like self-destruction to the point of returning to the womb right because that's like for freud that's basically the ground zero where there's no tension whereas eros is like constantly intentioning and constantly releasing Thanos is kind of doing something a little bit different right how do you just get rid of the two so that's kind of the classic this uh conceptuality they're up against just to start just to start the conversation Yeah, I, w- I would even go um, one step further. And the other thing they talk about here and how death sort of plays into it is, um, it to me, death here is not uh, the negative that it very much is inside of um, a lot of sort of classic psychoanalysis. Because to Freud, it is very much about, uh, you might say, desexualization, um, uh, a lot of sort of things that play towards a generalized repetition. For, for Deleuze and Guattari, they see death uh, within the desiring machines, this imminent sort of experience and disconnection uh, allows us to find new connections. And this is, I think, one of the things they start playing with uh, here. Uh, It becomes a lot more clear, I think, in the second positive task. But the way death has shifted over time and how it sort of gets manipulated, they go pretty deep in in this section. it is not death that serves as a model for catatonia. It's catatonic schizophrenia that gives its model to death. Zero intensity, uh, the heat death of the universe. The death model appears when the BWO repels organs and lays them aside. No mouth, no tongue, no teeth. Uh, there is no opposition between the body without organs and organs as partial objects. They go through all of this sort of giving a, a sort of a universal historical, universal historyist view of the BWO and of death inside of this very specific usage because one of their big critiques is that death drive is again, not something that is sort of transcendental and built into us, which is the Freudian way. 
but instead it is contingent historically based on various things that are happening and how desire is played with. If we go way back uh, to early, early times, uh, the, well, I hate saying the first socius because that sort of totalizes it, but um, you go back to prehistory and you start in this place where death is something that happens. Um, it's, it's, it's not that death doesn't happen and people are immortal. Very much death does happen. There's a brutality to life, but death is not something that is handed down or an edict that is governed. It is not controlled. It is, oh, I'd say Steve died in the hunt today. It's probably sad. You probably mourn it. You bury, you mourn your dead. But it's not handed down from, in the second socius, for example, handed down on high. Uh, the, the despot is the one who controls life and death, controls desire, controls all. And as such, death sort of gets removed away from desire rather than being a thing that happens and we improve, move on, do our things, uh, life continues. Now it's like the sort of Damocles hanging overhead all the time. And then we move even worse into a place where it's no longer even one man's call, but instead because the despot and death are moved into capital and capital sort of controls our desire by, you know, rerouting the two axes I talked about. You end up in this place where death is part of every exchange. Every dealing with another person intrinsically has death built into it. This changes how the death instinct sort of is played through and how it operates inside of our everyday sort of existence. The, the, the change here and Deleuze, this is through a lot of his works. Um, Deleuze talks about death. I kind of, I think, in every single one. But um, this, this idea of how death has changed, there is a way that death works now. They're saying is not, is, is, is not transcendental, but instead historical contingent. And it is based on how desire is manipulated and played with. And so we are in a place where the death instinct and how death plays now is very different, very controlling, very all-encompassing. And it's no longer, um, how do we put it? Um, someone finished my sentence for me. I know I'm making general cohesion, co coherent sense, and suddenly I lost my thread. God damn it. Yeah. Well, he, uh, on page um, 332, he, he mentions uh, the ascetic ideal. You know, that's the, you know, I think that's uh, Nietzsche's term. And so he's, he's uh, critique critiquing psychoanalysis for for using the death drive as a kind of a, a an ascetic ideal that is a, <clears throat> as a force of repression rather than a, than a life and um, that, that seems to make sense you know because the it's like the superego is kind of uh, you know acting as a kind of ascetic ideal mm -hmm. and it, yeah and so if you associate death with that kind of um, you know superego drive you know uh, it, 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 it you know it would make sense that it is uh, acting as a as a repression against the arrows as, as opposed to you know working with arrows yes i like that i like that a lot that's good yep i think i would attack her from the angle of it's like if you think about thanatos and this especially the like the return to the womb right I think this plays into the critique of regression and progression really nicely. Because, um, and, and without trying to lampoon the idea, you know, I don't want to caricature it, but that idea of the infantility, and like especially in the sense of like the ceasing of desire, like that quelling 
to go that far would be to return to the, the womb almost as if one could have a new life. But uh, at the same time, the idea is also kind of not to do that because that would be to start the whole thing over again. I think that's part of why they, they compare it to Nirvana, um, which is actually rather amusing. And to your point, it is rather Nietzschean, right? Because I think he criticizes Schopenhauer's uh, sort of like Buddhism. But I think what that gives way to then is, right, part of the regressive model of like the whole daddy, mommy, me thing, right, is that the me is also a child there. And that infantility plays a large part in the conceptuality of like the psyche, uh, but more specifically the unconscious, right? When they call it an orphan unconscious, you know, part of the joke is that it, we do conceive it as a, a kind of orphan and very often kind of a childlike way, right? You know, there's the regression to the oral stage, for instance. Well, and, and the other side of that that's important, I think, is as we go, again, it is to do away with the transcendental concept of the death instinct as being just innate to human and instead being contingent. Because that's underlying this thread of the death instinct was not a thing during the primitive, during the first socius, which did not have power or a, a meta-conception or a large-scale sort of economy. Death was just a fact of life. <clears throat> As the despot took it over, the despot could hand it down, but death was still handed out by the despot. Like, like this was the thing. He was the godhead. It would come from him. There was probably that fear. It was omnipresent, but it wasn't baked into our everyday lives. But now it is. The market determines if we live or die. If... Right now, you were to decide no longer to deal with capital. I'm just done. I'm, I'm off. You would be a homeless person who would probably die. Like, you just would. This is, I mean, I'm in America. Uh, sorry, some of you live in countries that aren't cesspits of hell. Um, but literally, people here, if they don't take part, you die. Uh, from medical reasons, because you don't have insurance. You don't have anywhere to live. Um, Canada, I think one of my fucked up, Articles I've read is a woman, they recently passed a law. Actually, this is, this is like the perfect fucking example of this. I don't want to think of it. They passed a law that allowed people to seek out assisted suicides. The intention here is that rather than just let anyone do it, they wanted to have a board of people who would allow it to be the case. And so they could pick and choose and get people the help they need. One woman who has severe, massive allergies uh, applied and she got it. Now, why did she apply? She applied because on government assistance, she's unable to find an apartment in a clean enough area because the air bothers her so much. So she applied for assisted suicide and they granted it. This is the thing that actually happened. That, that's 100% determined by the market. There's no one who has set out and said this woman will die. They're allowing her to die. She's dying because the market decided that the $1,200 a month is not enough to live in a place that has nice air because nice air is determined by economic, social, political realities. This is a thing. So death is everywhere for us. Anyone who lives in capital experiences this. Every choice, death is part of it. And so the death instinct that we've had developed or that we have had sort of, sort of brought into us is the more pervasive, brutal version that, that Freud sees. But again, it's produced imminently um, and emergently. It is not something that is transcendental. 
Yeah, I'm going to end there. It's the worst story I've heard in my, that's the worst story I may have heard in my life. I've heard sad stories. That one depresses me because it is the coldest way I've ever heard someone dying. I think everything else. It's like people pro death penalty, someone dying of overdoses. There's all those are horrifying. She, she can't afford to live somewhere that her allergies won't flare up. So they approved her suicide. Like, uh, I actually, I don't even know if I can conceptualize that, but it's a perfect example of what we're talking about here with the death instinct. Everything you do has it built in everything. Um, let's see, we'll I, go with, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, is, is there a second question or? No, I was going to start reading some of the stuff off of, te- off of the text chat. Am I in the wrong text chat? Mm, doesn't matter. There's no right one, apparently. <laughs> there you go. All, all text chats are the same. Your text chat is no different than any other text chat. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, as long as we're on the death thing, I, I do think it's important to keep in mind, too, like when they write, the body without organs is the model of death. So death is modeled after the BWO, right? That's a really mm-hmm. important statement because as, as we see, part of what happens in the end of this uh, section, right, is when they make the critique of um, why is capital as a socius more repressive than the other two, right? Part of the way they explain that is the distance between the molar and the molecular, between the socius and the BWO, and another way of saying it, right? Mm-hmm. Part of what they're, I think, suggesting there then is that the very model of death itself then, right, the, the BWO is this kind of absolute zero, um, is very, is in a sense, very distant from what's going on in the molar. I, I think that's a really interesting point and worth pondering, right? Because the kind of revolutionary potential, but certainly the potential for that deterritorialization that we talked about, that I think D and G see in, at least at a large level in the death drive, right? That's not close at hand per se. That's actually, in a manner of speaking, quite distant. And I think that plays into why death becomes transcendent for psychoanalysis. I think that kind of distance is a factor there. I can agree with that very much. Um, I'm going to jump around because there's a couple of questions in here or comments. I'm going to start with uh, Drew. Um, I think about the fascist within partially as the steadfast adherence to a given representation. I am man, therefore I cannot wear makeup. Then the fascist within externalizes onto others, judging others for doing masculinity correctly. Also, if that's something else, let me know. No, that's the, the, the fascist within, as I refer to it and uh, others around the space very much do, is that it is a demand to knowledge and then putting that knowledge onto other people because of the attachment to representation. And that's, again, as we go through this, and I think this is where the destructive task is uh, where a lot of people, I think, even without reading Deleuze and Guattari, they're very big on because the idea of breaking down narratives is not anathema to, I think, a lot of thinking people who care. My mom does this. My dad, like people are, are, are at least some level. Um, that's a thing they do. Their method of doing it and having it in a very specific way, I think, is unique to DNG. But this is where we start getting into the fun part where it's, the inner fascist, as you start looking at your representations, it's not 
doing away with them wholly and forgetting you ever had them because that's just purely destructive and then eliminating. There's a second factor. It's to understand um, those delusions, those produced artifacts, those representations, those concepts, these machines that exist in your realm, they're, they're, they're as material and real as anything because they produce and desiring machines connect to them because they really, really, really like them. Now, why, why is that? Why do the desiring machines connect to these representations? Well, that's the question. What is the order they connect in? How does one produce another? How do, how does the string of meaning that is, as their example, the bicycle and the dead rat's ass, ultimately produce a resentment or towards your mother? Well, I, I don't know, but the goal would be to find these connections, to find how the machines go in and out, because ultimately they are produced and they are also productive. They are machines. They are assemblages. They are, um, I, I've started to prefer the term arrangements of partial objects and experiences that you have assigned meaning to, and that machine that they are is in turn assigning meaning to other things. And it, uh, I like the snowball rolling downhill metaphor because it does seem to exist that way, at least in my personal experience. It's down, 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 and finds its own way to add more and more and more and more. Uh, it's, that tends to be how I think towards that, but that's uh, your description of it is spot on. Um, um, be a man as a thing. You're welcome to tell me what the fuck it even means. I think too, though, I would, I would proffer that we have to be a little bit careful here too, because I mean, I, I see you. Is it is true, right? I, I see you're yeah. using the traditional psychoanalysis of the projection, right? And certainly that. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say yeah. I'm I'm kind of coming from this like. With the, with the training wheels on. No, I mean that's that's what they're responding to, though. Like that's, I I think that's where my comment comes from. Is like, you know, especially if you think about, like a personal unconscious, right? I think you've got to take a, a, an additional step back there because, like, the kind of fascism that they're talking about isn't a fascism. Um, necessarily internal to the person, right? It's something that's molarly produced and that actually any person that's going to be there, this would form the very person and the consciousness that arises, right? Just like it would form the other things around them, right? Like they have the example of the clock earlier on, you know, the clock can be... Um, this is a banal way of putting it. The clock can be a way of telling time before dinner, but it can also function as a way of counting work hours. You know, this is a very uh, watered down version of what they say. But I think that's really critical because, like, the kind of, you know, what the molar makes possible, right? Whatever gets formed as an assemblage or as an, um, I missed the other word. But whatever gets formed as the assemblage, right? Part of what will form it um, is this risk of fascism to begin with. And I, I will also add, everything that's coming that we're talking about, this is literally also the next section. So I'm trying to stay a little light because the discussion here is very focused around um, 
within this positive task, uh, very specifically identifying and understanding what classic psychoanalysis may have called drives, but instead we need to start breaking them apart, finding the partial objects, desiring machines, and arrangements of experience that are ultimately pushing the subject to do the different things they do to drive the desire that drives it in order to repair the pipes ultimately that are creating the person. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a big part of it, right? Because, I mean, what, whatever, like molarly speaking, right? Whatever is formed there, global persons or, or, or what have you, right? That, and that does come up in the next chapter, right? That's the revolutionary investment. But, you know, that does depend a lot on what we're talking about and how, um, you know, how this production works with the indices. But that's that's 4.5, like you're saying. So probably not worth going too deep into that before we get into it. Well, and that's and the reason they focus on death through so much of this is traditional psychoanalytic thinking, well, an aspect of it, is, I mean, it's getting at why is a person doing this? Why are they being self-destructive? Why are they ruining their life? Well, Thanatos and a death drive that is transcendent as an excuse gives us that answer. It's like, oh, no, no, they're taking all the drugs, doing all that. They're self-destructive because that's just a human thing. That's just a it's just drive, death drive. Let's talk about these sort of large-scale ideas. And they're taking it much deeper than that. They're saying, no, 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 this, death appears in here because of the following things. Death drive doesn't work the same way you're thinking about. And it isn't this, you know, large-scale bit. It's connected to how our everyday actions are part of how death is distributed, how meaning is distributed through capital, how capital organizes us and tells us what we need to be doing. And as such, it gives us, as the people who are utilizing the map of signifiers to try to find the desiring machines better chances to find our direction. Because that's kind of the, um, if I were to use it as a metaphor, which I don't think it's actually that much of a metaphor, I'd probably say it's more direct. The, the whole goal would be that you have, as you go, you start defining a map of this person's different parts of them. And you're trying to solve the problem of where are the pipes disconnected and playing the role of plumber almost. Where are the design machines and all that? And if you start with a map that already has shit on it, you're not going to find it. And that's kind of their thing. It's, it's first we must erase everything off the page or even to take a quote from Deleuze, um, the page is already covered with so many cliches. The only way an artist can create anything is by destroying the canvas itself. And that kind of thinking is what they're doing a lot of here. The canvas of the death drive, the canvas of how libido works, the canvas of the Oedipus complex. And they're like, all of these things are the canvas. And here is actually how paint and paper work and what they're made of. And we need to find those things. That's why they spend so much time on death because the death drive, uh, especially beyond the pleasure principle, it, it is very much about what drives people to do what they do. Um, and it's uh, very much not how they view the things, you might say. So, uh, could you say that the death drive, as uh, conceptualized by Freud, is a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's not part of the organic, um, you know, process, whereas um, Deleuze, I think, is uh, describing the death as it's part of the organic process. And that uh, you could pretty much, could you say that also of the various machinic um, drives um, that, you know, one aspect of it, you know, the 
the original nature of it is is organic. You know, it's an organic, productive, um, you know, um, you know, uh, drive. Uh, but there is a uh, there is an aspect of it that is not organic. That is that is um, you know it, it derives from the despotic and then or it's part of the uh, socius, which is not organic. Um, if, if by organic we mean sort of innate or naturally occurring without any social larger bits, exactly. Right. Then, then yes, I would say for well, so for losing lottery, it is it is not a natural thing. Death exists as a thing, but the drive, as Freud came to talk about it, is the current iteration. In the same way, Oedipus can only exist under capitalism as we know it, as they went through and they talked through. This is the same thing that. Sure, people can fuck their moms in the primitive. Yes, like Oedipus as a thing can exist then, but that's not the Oedipus complex. There's a difference there. The Oedipus complex of, uh, oh, I'm triangulated in reality between my mother and father, and I need to take over my father, kill him, replace him. I want to have sex with my mother because of blah, blah, blah. This setup, sure, back in the day, that may have happened. It has nothing to do with the point of the innate human reality of what the Oedipus complex means, which it doesn't. It's contingent and produced by the social uh, realities. The death drive is the same thing to D&G. To Freud, it's not. To Freud, it is very much a base-level compulsion. Uh, There's a reason he didn't really use, like, uh, instinct. It's, It's drive, but instinct is thrown in there a lot because it does play in that very much natural reality of humanity as far as Freud was concerned and, and Lacan that this is just part of being human, um, which D and G very much are against. I, I think what kind of helps here, right? Is, uh, this is three twenty nine. So keep in mind earlier, right? They talked about like this, the substance, the substantive consistency of the BWO and desired machines, right? Which is just, I think, a fancy word of, you know, that they're not substant, they're not different substantively, right? There's a consistency there. So on 329, they write, it is a question of different parts of the machine, different and coexisting, different in their very coexistence. Mm. Hence, it is absurd to speak of a death desire that would presumably be in a qualitative opposition to the life desires. Death is not desired. There is only death that desires by virtue of the body without organs or the immobile motor. And there is also life that desires by virtue of the working organs. There we do not have two desires, but two parts. Two kinds of desiring machine parts in the dispersion of the machine itself. And then they go into how does it function. But I I think for our purposes, part of what that's Part of what they're showing there, right, is they're not understanding, and it's kind of the same point, right? Death and life as drives, put in that terminology, aren't substantively different in that manner. Because death is the, when they say model, I'm almost tempted to say the representation, but because death is is modeled after the body without organs, right? That means whatever is happening in terms of desiring production, right? And the, the whole second synthesis and the BWO is part in that. 
that's what that's what death is modeled after, right? And I think that's part of what what makes this so interesting too is like when we talk about a transcendent a transcendent death, right? As we later will, if you think of what the body without organs does, uh, then you represent that as a transcendent, right? That's kind of the states of the whole thing, right? Is everything that desire does functionally and the you know, for psychoanalysis, it's the erogenous zones, but the territories, that whole that whole process of production is basically what's moving um, upward, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating one. There's 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 multiple secondary texts on their take on death, and I do suggest reading them um, because it's Deleuze's take on death, I think, is again, we just finished our logic of sense reading. And when I get that up, it makes a lot more sense. but. He does definitely take from a, a stoic tradition of understanding how these things operate and play with us and play in our meaning. And it's pretty wonderful, actually. Um, Schofie, uh, Schofie asks, uh, so is it like turtles all the way down? The first positive task is tracing the desiring machines one after another down to what? Uh, I already answered this, but I do want to like out loud uh, have the conversation. Um, it's not so much tracing the desire machines down to something. This is very much the traditional psychoanalytic view that um, we want to find the truth underneath it all. Yeah, that's a really weird sentence for Deleuze and Guattari to be able to say. It's not really how they think of it because underneath everything, there isn't something waiting like a nugget of a personal. The true Brooks is underneath all of those layers. That's not really the thing. Instead, we find the desiring machines, wherever they happen to be, what they're connecting to. We find out how to get them restarted, how to connect them right, how to find where they're connected and fix those things. Uh, and that's why I use pipes as examples because the whole machine works better when that's the case. It's, it's much more about a machinic unconscious. So think again about how a repairman may go after a job. It's not about, oh, I'm going to sit with my washing machine. I'm going to find out Where's the true washing machine inside of you? It's very much the same thing. It's, well, the, the true you, well, it's, it's just getting the machine started again so it can do what it needs to be doing and wants to be doing and emergently able to do that. Um, the allow desire machines to connect. That's the underlying bit. If that makes sense, Schofie? Schofie? God damn it. I'm never going to pronounce your name correctly. I apologize so many times. Yes, um, it makes sense. Um, the follow-up question that I had is, um, can I can I ask it here? Mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, like, I'm wondering, is it regardless of what the desiring machine is? Like, it doesn't matter. You want to smoke, or you want to fuck whoever, or like. Well, so so, um, those aren't. Say, this is where it's fun. It's not so much that those are desiring machines. Those are desires. Uh, but they're, they're molar. Fucking is, is very molar. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything is ultimately sexual in the desiring machines world. They're always connecting. So the desire to fuck necessitates a shit ton of desiring machines all working at the same time. Like just a, a metric ton of them. Mm. And so as you start finding, um, you know, someone has a, a deviant sexual behavior that they want to get rid of, or they're neurotic about visiting their mother on Mother's Day. Ultimately, at the base level, it's sexual because desire machines are connecting and fucking each other. But it's not mm -hmm. really sex. That's a representation. Instead, it's, 
Well, we need to go in, find out where the desire machines misfiring. What are they trying to attach to? What representations are you believing in? Let's break those. And then through this positive task, let's actually identify the connections and restart some of the desiring machines. And then we start getting into the second positive task, which finishes it out. But this is kind of that step of saying, there's a shit ton of things firing. It is not, oh, I need to figure out why they want to fuck this person because that why is its own representation. It's I'm here to find out all the machines that are working that make that the thing. And then because ultimately anxiety or neuroticism or any of these issues, they believe and I think um, a, this would be a debatable thing that I actually think I could probably argue pretty cleanly. Ultimately, a lot of these things come from misfiring, desiring machines. And it's an edge of a thing. It's not the whole mm-hmm. of your sexuality is broken. It's not that. It's a, a straight white man who's having very good Christian sex can have the same exact anxiety about sex that a trans woman not having sex with a non-binary in a polyamorous relationship. Like we, they can have the same exact anxiety, even though they're on the surface drastically different. And it could all be because in third grade, they connected sex with this one thing a teacher said. It just happens to be these little things and these arrangements of things. And the desiring machines are able to help us sort of see what are the lines, what are the things connected, how are they arranged, and what is desire actually attaching to. And there's a lot of stuff. And it's not that one thing represents another, not that we're trying to get at the truth of the thing, but just see the desiring machines and, and help them start again. Because ultimately they're at their best and there's death being a big part of this. They're at their best when they are connecting and disconnecting. Hmm. And um, like by, by cleaning the shit, so to say, um, doing the plumbing yeah. work. It's not, it's not far from that. It's, 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 it's cleaning the shit. It's, it's cleaning the electrical connections. It's, it's also making sure that it breaks because it, one of the things they talk about death quite a bit is that, uh, and they say it early on, desiring machines are flows and breaks. We don't right. want just desiring machines connected to the same thing for a billion years. That's the opposite because that, that's where we get heat death. That's the death instinct. We do the same thing over and over out of fear of death now because we know the previous thing didn't kill us. There's kind of that overwhelming push towards sameness because we know new may kill us, so we stay doing the same thing. That's a very simplified shit version of it. But underneath it, desiring machines are at their best, and we are too, when we allow connections to stop, which means we allow death to actually happen. And 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 be part of that process because when a desire machine breaks, it gets to connect to something else and something else mm. is interesting and new and re- going after the same one over and over and over is paranoiac narcissism. It's a, it's where we get anxiety. It's where these problems start spawning. And that's why we need to identify so many of these levels, break down the representations and get to the underlying sort of suckling desiring machines that are reaching out all the time, trying to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over. The um, connective synthesis or something in the beginning, <clears throat> one uh, after another. Well, it's and it's the disconnective because the disconnection is the next oh, right. part. Um, and so it's the disjunctive. And when you have that, and you actually, and this is a discussion we've been having in a few other chats, but also our logic sense group, when you like actually concretize and allow and celebrate difference as a thing rather than just direct repetition 
Um, someone may have written a book on those two things. Um, when you have those elements, the big push is ultimately, you could say, oh, the safe thing, do the safe thing, do the re repetition. And we have that sort of down, but repetition is kind of a bullshit thing. Difference is actually the interesting thing. And um, the way it comes about, it's not a destructive difference. Uh, I, I, can get, I can talk for hours about that, so I'm trying to skip around a little bit too much. Um, it, it, underneath it all, it comes down to allowing emergent desiring machine behaviors, which is connection and disconnection. When we get stuck, it's because of something wrong, and we need to figure out what those things are without also introducing our own representations into it, like saying, oh, you hate your boss and your job? That's because you, need, you, need, you, you want to fuck your mom and you hate your dad. <laughs> yeah. yeah which is the underlying thing that happens here so yeah that makes a lot of sense um thank you so much but uh, when you said allowing the the desiring machine to also break um it doesn't mean encouraging it to break does it um for example if, if it, I... it doesn't need encouragement no it does not need it encouragement to break tired. It already desires something. Like, like th this is what it does. It 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 connects and it disconnects and then it connects again. But we can demand and create a body without organs that enables either. Like there is power in us. We are the counter actualization. We are the ability to interpret and change and review how we see things, reorder meaning. That is the one interesting power we have. Um, and so, as such, we can create meaning that encourages the repetition that pushes us over and over and over to doing the same thing and cause the hyper neurotic states. Desire machines just are doing what they're doing. We introduce yeah. these things. And so it's not that it needs encouragement to disconnect or connect. They're going to constantly do that. They're, it's not that they stay connected forever. They disconnect and then chase after that other thing. This is the neurotic paranoiac machine that they talked about that causes the neurotic. They'd, it's, it's, it's starving for that, chasing the dragon, you might say, of that first time that it connected that it loved. Um, right. That's kind of the mentality, at least as I understand it. If anyone wants to jump in and, and correct me, now would be the time because it's... I'm looking to you, Jack, for sure. In terms of the second synthesis? Yeah. Oh, um, I mean, I understand it this way, right? The paranoiac at a molecular level is one of the is the repulsion at the level of the BWL, right? Mm -hmm. Like even with them, um, when they say they're talking about the model here, the model of death from the BW. Oh, on page three thirty, they write, um, "This is just after they ask the question: How does it function? Repulsion is the condition of the machines functioning." But attraction is the functioning itself. So what you've got there, right, is, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, the, the paranoiac is a condition of the schizophrenic there. But the schizophrenia is the functioning itself. It's continued that the functioning depends on repulsion is clear to us, and as much as it all works only by breaking down. One is then able to say what this running or this functioning consists of. And this is what you guys are talking about in terms of discovering the plumbing, right? In uh, the cycle of the desiring machine, it is a matter of constantly translating, constantly converting the death model to something else altogether, which is the experience of death. Converting the death that rises from within, that is, in the body without organs. 
and to the death that comes from without on the body without organs, right? So, you know, it's kind of funny there. They go kind of, I read that as they go from the schizophrenic to the paranoiac there quite, quite neatly. But yeah, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, even there, right? Like what the BWO part of the functionality enables in these two energies, right? Um, is that model of death? I guess perhaps I hope I clarify a point early. I guess what's represented is not only the BWO, but that death model, which is kind of interesting to think about. Um, well, very, sorry, go ahead. I guess with the neurotic psychotic, like that's a big move in psychoanalysis that as I understand it, right? The, the big move is basically that in class in psychoanalysis, people are psychotic when their desires, when the id um, basically does what it wants and the ego is not able to get hold of it, right? Uh, the neurotic is just somebody whose ego is able to get a hold of it. <laughs> so there's certainly that risk either way, right? Like it, you kind of, it's, it's really kind of like a, um, a double bind, right? And either way, you're sick for psychoanalysis. Well, and, and it adds layers to things because it's, again, the way that they're talking about death and how it plays inside of this, the way they're talking about neurotic, it, it wraps up and it's incredibly clever because it wraps up a lot of things that other uh, people who I very much love the writing of Lacan as an example, um, it gives imminent emergent reasons and contingent reasons that we have things like the desire of another's desire, the big other, for example, um, the, the reality of how death plays in our society, because everything is based on market forces and death could come at any moment. It means that our desire and our repression becomes uniquely constant. And as such, because of the way that it's set up, our boss's desires are the thing we now desire. It's not that we desire the things they desire. We desire their desire. We desire the thing that they want because otherwise I'm going to die. <laughs> like, like it's, um, it's the, the pauper at the Prince begging for his life, but it's for $13 an hour, I guess. And so you end up with this really strange thing of generalized repression representations that get pushed in because it's not that you desire the boss's desire. Like you don't, no desiring machine knows of your boss. They have no concept of that. They know these connections yield better things. And you're, yeah. you place this representation in there again, how Oedipus works to create this really fucked up repressing representation. Um, but this is the same thing. This, the, the way that they've structured all this gives us reason that as these things are pushed into us, Oh, you, you, you need to work more hours than me. Uh, I've, I've worked for bosses who, uh, had the, I'm boots on the ground first, last boot out. And there's some truth to that. Uh, but anyone who actually does that knows it's just because they want you to feel guilty that you're coming in later than them or that you're coming in, you're leaving earlier. And that, that social pressure exists. And so now you want them to like you. So do you stay longer than, do you just fuck around and play video games in solitaire on your computer just to make sure you're the last one out? Like um, the George Costanza where you just forget your car at work for three days mm -hmm. and everyone thinks you're pulling all-nighters. Um, like this. Thank you for that reference. 
<laughs> I, I have to. Anytime I can pull Seinfeld in. Um, but the the like underneath thing that happens is these repressive representations become the things you desire and what you want. And you don't really realize that's the case. So there so it's not that Lacan's wrong at all. It's it's the critique is the same one Deleuze makes of everything. It is you just didn't go far enough. You've got the notes, you're nailing all of these things, but the why, the underneath it all, doesn't have a material underneath it because it's transcendental. Everything you rely on is transcendental, but here's a materialist prescription for why these things come about and how they come about. And it's very clever in that way, I think. Hmm. And like we're, we're reading, um, like I'm reading this um, Deleuze, for example, again and again and again without understanding a lot of what it's, most of what it's saying. Um, my task is then to um, see what the desire behind it is or what the desiring machine is trying to connect to and what is uh, the barrier between that or just to apply it to myself, for example. The, the first thing is um, to break down your representations. This is the, the, the first task is the destructive task. And it's necessary to start there because we don't really know what we know. And it's the first thing you have to do. Now, as you do that, you're going to see signposts basically that say, hey, this, there's this weird arrangement of things. Why do I believe this? This is garbage. And it's, again, you don't want to get rid of that garbage. Like um, it, garbage on a, on a seashore doesn't come from nowhere. So you don't just throw it in the garbage and just go, oh, I guess that's never going to happen again. It's like, oh, this was made. I need to figure out how this got here. And now you start looking for the connections, the desiring machines, the bicycles, the dead rat's ass, whatever it may be. And, and these, these patterns, and it's the one thing we humans are very good at, is finding those patterns. And as you start seeing how they connect or disconnect, you can start seeing where things might be misfiring or where they're trying their damnedest to connect to something that isn't actually material and is a space of representation that's causing repression. It's, um, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, totally. Thank you so much. Yeah. And drew, um, I was a director at a company that had my favorite thing. It's a uh, unlimited vacation time, um, which my current company has. It's one of the hardest things because either the company genuinely means it or they just use it so they don't have to pay you for excess vacation and everyone has the pressure to not take any vacation time, which was the case. I had uh, two years, didn't take a single vacation day because everyone just had to work. That's how it was. And those things are brutal, brutal, man, man. Um, that's basically the same deal as you should want to visit your mother or grandmother oh. or whatever whole deal. Oh, if, if you cared, you'd call me. If you cared, it's okay. It's okay. If you Why cared, don't you call. call me, Brutzio yeah. I'm always yeah. waiting for your call. Yeah. It's, I, if you cared. If you cared. Yeah. Just a reminder that it's such and such's birthday next week. No oh, pressure. The worst. The worst. Um, yeah, it's uh, these these things um, because innately we we are chased by death in every decision because of the way our society works. Awful world. Um, the, these things become terrifying. Every choice. And that is a reality that happens. We all feel it at some point uh, where we 
have our parents maybe see a homeless person and make a comment to you when you're 12, um, stay in school or study or you're going to end up like that. And it's like, wait, <laughs> you know, you're threatening me with death. Excellent. They are not explicitly, but pretty fucking explicitly. And so all of these things start building into kind of how we are, what our desires are, where repression comes from. And again, this is the point of these tasks is to be able to identify them and be able to see where there's a break because the second positive task is about sort of restarting those breaks because people don't like breaks, man. They don't like it. Desiring machines love going after the same thing over and over if you do it. So it's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Um, man, I just depressed myself. Again, this has been a depressing. I mentioned three things that make me profoundly sad today. Wonderful. Let's go with it. Uh, you know, I'm not getting any younger, Brooks. Why oh don't you God. call? Um, my my father laid the line on me because um, I won't I won't go home to visit uh, because of uh, well, I was my parents live in the same house in the same neighborhood where a bunch of my friends murdered a bunch of other people and it ruined my life. So there's this whole massive trauma. So I don't go back, and um, I let them know that continually. Well, my parents refuse to travel. So my dad occasionally lets me know that, you know, I was just thinking, there's a good chance I'll only see you three more times before I die. <laughs> it's like the, the darkest thing you can say to your child. Um, and it's like, you're retired and you have money. You can visit. No. Okay. Anyway, um, that's, that is quite literally what we're talking about. Um, wonderful. Oof. All right, let's go back. Uh, I know there was another couple questions in here. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, Tiernan, uh, later they mention how we don't desire death, but rather things that are dead. In other words, images, capital images, uh, the worker, a love for continuation of the same, a fear of things coming undone. I wanted to make sure I hit this. I know it wasn't a question, Tiernan. I don't care. This is fucking spot on because, the if you don't immediately think of the Avengers movies when someone says this, you should. Um, pop culture as a thing, if you don't think of, you should. The immediate reality of dead images and the fear of living things, the way tender is a swipe right and we maybe go fuck, and the, then I don't have to worry about falling in love or accidentally, you know, having an emotional experience. Good Lord. Good Lord, I wouldn't want that. Instead, the, the marriage of us to our images and the safe things that they are because they are dead is such a fucking profoundly good way to talk about this. And again, cleverly fits into the entirety of how they say that, you know, the imminent world works. Um, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned it. And if anyone has questions about it or comments on it, now would be the time because it's one of my favorite points of this section. It's also when a lot of people have prof wrote profound things. Um, What's his name? I uh, wrote a book called, I'll find it. I'll find it while we talk. Uh, give me a moment. Please, anyone talk. Oh, Signs and Machines. Lazarato. Signs and Machines. Jesus Christ, that's an amazing book on exactly that subject. No problem. I'll, I'll start by reading a bit of Holland because I like how he talks about this stuff too. Uh, and some of this is covering also the next chapter. So don't 
get too nervous about any words or things that may shift. Um, Historically, schizoanalysis shows that market decoding destabilizes the symbolic order of culture, therefore undermines personal identity in all of its dimensions, gender and sexual orientation included. The disorganization and disaggregation of the field of bodies, which disrupt the regulatory fiction of heterosexual coherence that Butler refers to, is a specific case, indeed a particularly dramatic and highly charged one of the general dissolution of personal identity affected by axiomatization. Persons become mere images of images, as Deleuze and Guattari put it, even as the number of images increases, with the increase in the number of axioms, and the durability and stability decrease. Furthermore, and paradoxically, even as the nuclear family itself tends to reproduce rigid, bipolar gender norms, its enforced segregation from society at large eventually ends up weakening its influence on personal identity. All manner of opportunities for gender displacement, deviation, and subversion become possible in the wide open spaces outside the family, malls, nightclubs, MTV, etc. Man, he's a boomer. Uh, created by a market society. Bringing up nightclubs and MTV, I love as examples. Man. Um, the, the nature of images inside of all of this is so very, very important and how these things play. I just love the phrasing of that. Um, specifically the axiomatics as well, how they tie into that. But anytime, Tiernan, uh, you are more than welcome to just interrupt me and just jump straight in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just trying to collect my thoughts. Because, um, uh, let's see. Um, I thought this, this part was... Um, Pretty pretty interesting because like uh, in the beginning of the the next section, um, they they kind of bring this up again uh, with the production of lack and anti-production, and how um, these images kind of um, like kind of play into the death drive, as in like um, wanting that desexualized energy um, to to like uh, fulfill the role of the worker or whatnot, which will never happen because you only have these partial objects, these these drives that you know will continually die. Um, uh, so so that's that's the kind of uh, paradoxical um, aspect, I guess, of the the death drive is like in the Freudian sense. You know, there's um, there's there's the desire to continue what is. You know, those images, um, the institution as internal, um, but you do that ironically. Um, <laughs> And, and keeping things the same, which is, I, I guess that's what is uh, being dead, but also fear of things coming undone, which is the, the more profound death. Um, I don't know how much sense I'm making. Uh, I don't have my notes with me because I had to step outside. But um, that's kind of the role of the image, right? Is um, It's the, the global complete object, which you are always one, two, three steps removed because you only have your partial flows that start and end you know, um, you're not always a worker, but, you know, you strive to be the perfect one. It's the same kind of thing, uh, same kind of logic with God, where God is the only one that's perfect and everything is only derivative from that. And you only can strive to be, um, you know, in the image of God. You can never quite be it. Uh, it's that same kind of move, I guess. Love it. It's a... It's one of the more interesting things to discuss, especially in a modern era, uh, that 
has images exist as it does replicated as nauseum almost to a absurd point, uh, the way 4chan operated creating memes. And then after that, literally the mass replication of images that make images almost meaningless in and of themselves. It's kind of an incredible thing that we've gotten to, but all, but all of it ultimately yeah. again comes back to that same, they are dead. They have nothing for us. They're, they're information, but they are baked slices of a thing. They are not a living, breathing, vital process. And somehow we still desire them. And it's because they are dead, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And um, they also flesh this out again in, in the next part because they talk about uh, selection um, and gregariousness and like the herd instinct and like Nietzsche's sense. Um, and I, I mean, it's like it happens from a molecular partial object that goes through the selection process. And then, you know, then at that point, uh, it, it becomes the, the dead image that um, everybody is uh, trying to replicate, um, you know, as some derivative form, but precisely because of, of its gregariousness. Um, and then that, that leads to, you know, like recognition of the father and the whole psychoanalytic thing. It, it's great. And then the phrase that um, I think is also really kind of a profound truth in it is uh, they say the phrase, in truth, capitalism has nothing to co-opt. Rather, its powers of co-option coexist more often than not with what is to be co-opted and even anticipate it. How many revolutionary groups as such are already in place for a co-option that will be carried out only in the future and form an apparatus for the absorption of a surplus value not produced yet, which gives them precisely an apparent revolutionary position. This... I, I, I love that phrasing. Um, uh, the idea that capitalism corrupts uh, is, I think, the phrase that they're going after. It's, it's not so much that capitalism corrupts. It's not that at all. It's that capitalism coexists with, th with that which is to be corrupted and even anticipates its creation. That, I think, is where we start getting into really interesting discussions about what it means to create an actual revolutionary, an actual revolutionary experience, um, um, actual anything. Because you have almost this preparing for the future reality that is capital that's doing whatever it feels like. It's ready for all of it. It's why we have, uh, and I mentioned it during the reading, and I will always, it's, it's why we have, you know, exploitative merch practices by pseudo left-wing groups. They don't know. They're on Redbubble. They're on t-shirt garbage sites that are deeply exploitative, fast fashion, like some of the worst things that exist. Like, so what do you do? How do these things work? How, do, how does this all happen? Um, how do we actually build something? And it's, by, it's, it's sidestepping the idea of, well, how do we build something that can't be corrupted? It's like, no, 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 no. It's too late. Like that's not the correct. That's not. That's not have that discussion because <laughs> that's preparing for a thing that's already happened, which I kind of love as an idea. Drew uh, says, "I keep thinking about the movie. Don't look up with all this. This is what the movie's doing." I have issues with that movie, but it is playing at the same sort of underlying thing. I think they could have done it harder, but it's very much playing at the same thing that um, the capitalist mode of production is ready for whatever comes at us. It's very much that. Uh, you're spot on. I like the phrasing too. 
to. No, and sorry to bother you. Ash is right also. Sorry to bother you nails that pretty nicely as well. Um, just go for you. But then wouldn't our desires connect with capital in the end after all? So why clear the shit? Uh, our desires connect, like, first, there is no such thing as our desires. Uh, that's just desire in general connects with and deals with capital. The The question is not so much, will it connect with? It's how do we... I mean, to me, the question is, and I think to Holland and others, if we're talking about very specifically subjectivity and the production of a emancipatory subject, it's not about, oh my God, desire will connect with capital. It's like, well, desire is already do connecting with everything. Like all of this is desire. Um, there's weird shit happening around it. The question would be less, how do we avoid capital and much more um, within the socius that we have? underneath all of this, how do we allow desire to work more emergently? Um, I'm going to use video games as an example here, uh, because that's just the easiest thing for me. Emergent game design is a really strange thing. I want to compare, can contrast two games. One is Dwarf Fortress, the other is Age of Empires. Um, uh, Age of Empires or Pharaoh, pick any of these is a very particular set of rules around how you build an army. You build the barracks here and everything works as it is scripted and mathematically told to. This gives X number of soldiers every X minutes. This produces food for X number of soldiers, X number of minutes. These things go through. This is a scripted game. These are fun. They're mathematically emergent, interesting stuff, but they do have a uh, it's called min-maxing. They have a pattern you can understand that's pretty simple about the best way to play. There's not a lot of room for general creativity. Um, it's why when you see someone, StarCraft, for example, the best StarCraft players in the world play effectively the same game. There's not a lot of room inside of that because, again, it's very scripted. It's more about how many times you can click per second uh, as a skill. Conversely, you have systemic emergent games. These are my favorites. Uh, a game like Dwarf Fortress, where you still build barracks and you build all the things I talked about, but they don't work mathematically like that. They have very, very complex probabilities built into each one. The dwarves, all seven of them, have their own personalities, and there's no end goal. Everything itself is a designed element that emergently does things when it connects with another thing. You don't know which dwarf is going to build what thing. They may have different because you can't order them. You can't literally say this chess piece moves there because this dwarf may have a drinking problem and this other one may be the woodcarver you want, but he's lusting after this other dwarf and so he's distracted. So the dwarf who's like a level one woodcarver comes over. Like this reality changes kind of the setup. And instead of building a very directed one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one mountain as you try to build the best version, the game is more about building emergent worlds and seeing what happens. This difference is what we're talking about. In your everyday life, as you go out, are you living a scripted or an emergent experience? Deleuze and Guattari would love you to have an emergent experience. You know, there's no way of getting around stuff. You're going to read books. We're, we're going to talk about video games and you're going to go see the Avengers. Sure, these are things that exist. And they mean different stuff. And you have to talk about we, you, representation gets used in everyday conversation. But it, what's making you say those things? What's putting in front of you? Is it that your desire machines, which are emergent, they are themselves unique assemblages. They are 
just doing the things as they collide and you're finding whatever comes next? Or has someone laid the next level out in front of you in a very particular mathematical order? And really, in order to make it out, your best bet is to min-max how your time is spent. Well, if I spend 42 minutes doing this, blah, 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 and then I'll be, this will be success. If I do these things with exactly this number of calories, and if I'm straight, oh, I'd need to become white. I better get on doing that. And then blah, 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 you go through all this. These are the lines that, that yield. This is representation. Representation is non-emergent. It is not connected to anything. It is not alive. It is not vital. I am underneath this a shitload of vital little desiring machines. You are too. All of us are. And if, if we are able to allow the arrangements that we are to just run into each other, disconnect, connect how they do, and off comes some other thing, we get emergent reality versus the representative, representationally based garbage pile that is laying things in front of us. If that makes sense. That to me is where we start talking about underneath it. The first task is when you play one of these games, how do you tell the difference between the two? Well, the first thing you do is you actually toy with them. Like, that's the first thing I do is to find out whether or not it's scripted or not. Oh, that, then you can very quick find out if a thing is scripted or not by breaking it. Uh, oh, by breaking it. That seems like that would be a destructive task. Yes, it would be. Then the second thing is we start utilizing the fact that I know that by looking at the things that connect to it and what it connects to. Because something made that, something produced that. It's some dude out the other side who built it, but something in the code made these things happen. I need to figure that out. And once I'm able to understand the code, then I can start being kind of like Neo in the Matrix by going, well, if I move this over, what if I understand this? What if I break these pieces? I keep these. Oh, actually that connection works a lot better. Suddenly I'm living a more emergent life. This is, to me, the underlying goal here is the emergent life rather than the, predict the, the predicated on representation life, the scripted life. That's my ramble, but that's a, I actually like that. It's a good ramble. Uh, one, dimension, one dimensionality to the, the kind of uh, representational um, um, kinds of behavior. Um, I would almost say there's, it, it, I, I'm hesitant to say it's one dimensionality to that behavior. I'd almost say zero dimensionality because they are images that do not do anything. There is no, like they connect and are produced, but they're produced in very particular social molar ways. They're not connectable. Like the desire doesn't connect to images. The way that they've described it with the Oedipus complex is desire actually creates a repressing representative within itself that desire is repressed underneath. Desire doesn't, isn't able to, desire machines can't connect to Oedipus. They can't connect to these things. So instead it creates a thing it can connect to that's sort of filling underneath it in a bunch of garbage. If that makes sense. Sorry, JK, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Yeah, that, that's, um, yeah, it helps me understand. Yeah, the, um, you know, because I was thinking of, um, you know, Herb Marcuse was a, a great writer and he, um, he kind of um, tried to, um, you know, uh, combine uh, Freudianism with, uh, with this kind of uh, uh, capitalist critique. And, um, and he called his book uh, One Dimensional with uh, One Dimensional Man. And so. Oh, yeah. yes. That's oh, no. Mark, and Mark Hughes is great. Yeah. So, um, yeah. These, these kind of machinic, uh, you know, um, yeah, you know, field of, um, you know, possible behaviors and th thought is a kind of, uh, 
is within a capitalist socialism is a kind of um, a dimension of a thought, right? And leads to a, a certain dimensions of behavior. So, so in, in the Marcusean sense, yes, it is one dimensional. It's, it's 100% that thing, the, the nature of consumerism and consumption yielding people who are uh, oppressed, yielding people who are naturally repressed. Um, that, yes, I should have allowed you to finish. I apologize. Uh, that's, that's 100% in this direction and, and towards this, utilizing terms that I think are slightly different, but generally, yes, we're talking about that. The lines of flight would entail, you know, um, you know, a different uh, thinking in these other different dimensions um, um, without going, without becoming schizophrenic or maybe, maybe neurotic is more, uh, <laughs> is uh, more successful, right? Well, maybe. <laughs> but schizophrenic is, uh, would you say that, um, could you uh, talk about what's the schizoanalysis, uh, how that is a a kind of um, possible line of flight? I, I think schizoanalysis isn't necessarily a line of flight. He's talking about through here a, a praxis that yields lines of flight. Um, the original intention of psychoanalysis, and I think for most people who get into it, is not necessarily to concretize, but instead it is to find a practice quite literally the term for a psychoanalyst is their practice, but to find a practice that through which, and I'm able to connect with a person and help them in their lives. Like that's literally the point. Um, for them, this is what we're doing here is we're developing a practice, a praxis, a thing that you can do uh, as a process that is able to take in uh, other subjectivities, other realities that people live, whatever people are into, and is able to have a better discussion around them just in general. And I think that's where we start getting into the powerful, fun stuff. Well, psychoanalysis comes out of capitalism. Like it's, it's necessitated. Um, think of capitalism as needing a whole bunch of rings in order to properly produce subjectivity and capture uh, the, the errant desires that would destroy it. The first is the nuclear family. My job as a parent is to make sure that my child uh, knows what he's supposed to be fucking doing before he leaves the house and how he's supposed to talk to people. And I, I'm, my job is to teach him these things and people do. Um, I'm just trying to get him ready for the world is what everyone says to justify literally anything from, uh, from the most minor thing all the way to like excessive abuse. Um, the second step of that is when that fails, we have psychoanalysis, clinicals, clinical studies, uh, clinicians, whatever you want to call it, therapists um, that are there to normalize you and continue to produce the subjectivity capitalism demands. And of course, then we have capital, which if you don't listen to, you fucking die. So happy day. I was going to say it's not an alternative entirely because they, I think they mentioned that they don't mean to like completely close off psychoanalysis. It is just a, a way of helping people go outside and touch grass. Yes. I, I actually, that's probably, I like the way of phrasing that. It's a way to go outside and touch grass. I think that's a good way to put it. Uzi didn't, uh, didn't critique uh, psychoanalysis. I think he tried to uh, understand 
the um, you know capitalist critique you know um, by combining uh, Freudian psychoanalysis. Yeah, I mean, he, he as far as I know, I think he kind of really used psychoanalysis. Um, I know he was big into generally the conception of sublimation, uh, the changing of libidinal drives into productive actions. And I think that was his underlying sort of critique of consumerism of what it did. But it, it Marcuse is a hundred percent worth reading. Goddamn. It's a good reference. I think he's even mentioned in here once or twice. Feel like he's mentioned in here. I'm now Google, I'm now checking. Yep. There is a, he's mentioned alongside every time they mention uh, Reich, it looks like. So yeah, a couple of Reich, uh, Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse. Uh, well, there we go. It's, that's the push. Reich and Marcuse. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Reich and then Marcuse. Yeah. They're, they're, they're apparently, they're put next to each other throughout the books. There we go. That makes a lot more sense. Um, if I can ask something, please. There is a paragraph on page um, 325 that's really hard for me to understand. Um, the paragraph that starts with, now let us assume that the respective flows um, associated with two partial objects at least partially overlap. Yes. Then, um, can someone help me with... Um, What's the gist of this um, paragraph is? Oh, God. Um, the gist is guattery, I can only assume. Um, give me a moment to read. If, if someone else can answer, I'm going to try to reread it. Uh, actually... Because it's using X and Y, it might actually be Toulouse. It's not using X and Y. They're production uh, very lightly rings. in relation oh. to X and Y that emit <laughs> them, but not the fields or presence. The a permutation involving two, three, and organs to form little abstract polygons that make game of the figurative Oedipal triangle never cease to undo it. I mean, it's again, Toulouse literally wrote it, but uh, the underlying stuff, I think, this is more guattery. I don't know. Uh, Jack, if you want to give it a yeah. shot. I mean, I can start by maybe reading this. Um, now let us assume that the respective flows associated with the two partial objects at least partially overlap. What's this in relation to flows? Pass okay, so they're talking about the molecular. Yep, okay, they're just talking about how did the syntheses work. Um, the flows are two-headed. Productive synthesis is made. Tried to account. Oh, this is the Mozart one. This is this is Mozart's butthole. That's what this one is. Okay. Um, one of the things that. Butthole. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it is. It is. It's um, Mozart. uh, If you didn't know, wrote just very much about his butt, like super much. Uh, so the, the paragraph ends, just to read it, raise your ass to your mouth. My ass burns like fire. And But what can be the meaning of that? Perhaps a turd wants to come out. Yes, yes, turd, I see you. I see you, I feel you. 
what is this? Is such a thing? That's Mozart writing that. Like, dude was uh, fecophiliac, to say the least. But the, the, the conversation in this paragraph is about what it means to have this weird, uh, this weird desiring machine that Mozart has of a piece of poop that he's talking to that's coming out of his butt. Uh, how, what does it mean to have that desiring machine? It's not that you can only have one organ at a time. Like we have this conception in our head of a desiring machine connects to another one thing connects to another one thing, but these are assemblages and machines themselves. They aren't, it's why pipes is probably a bad example. I go in and out of a handful of metaphors. Um, machines uh, can be used as a term. Assemblages people use quite often. Arrangements is, I think, the most interesting way to describe mm. these. So if we have desire arrangements that produce desire, you're talking about a lot of stuff inside of this, uh, an arrangement of a lot of singular elements, a lot of partial objects. These things can overlap. Desiring machines aren't one and done and then out the door. There's a lot of complexity that these machines then have. So if we have, uh, as they use the example of, you might have two, three, or N organs. These elements can overlap. They can be permutations. All of these indirect passive syntheses are one and the same engineering of desire. But who would be able to describe the desire machines of each subject? What analysis is exacting enough for this? This, this is where they start. You're not going to, the, you're not going to do that, I think is kind of their point underneath this. You're not going to literally be able to describe desiring machines because mm. they're by nature partial and beyond representation. If you've named them, you fucked up, basically. So mm -hmm. this is where the next step, the next paragraph comes in. Um, these syntheses necessarily imply the position of a BWO, a body without organs. This is due to the fact that the body without organs is in no way the contrary of the organs partial objects. Uh, no, no, dude, to just to say that, it's not that the BWO is opposed. Oh, the desiring machines are here and the BWO's literally the opposite thing over here. No, 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 no. It is itself produced in the first passive synthesis mm -hmm. connection as that which is going to neutralize or put into motion the two activities, the two heads of desire. For as we have seen, it can be produced as the amorphous fluid of anti-production, the slippery stuff that it's between and breaks stuff, just as it can be produced as the support that appropriates for itself the flow of production. It can as well repel the organ's objects as attract them and appropriate them for itself. But in repulsion, as in attraction, the body without organs is not in opposition to these organs' objects. It merely ensures its own opposition and their opposition with regards to an organism. The body without organs and the organs' partial objects are opposed conjointly to the organism. The body without organs is in fact produced as a whole, but a whole alongside the parts, a whole that does not unify or totalize them, but that is added to them like a new, really distinct part, continually building one layer on top of another on top of another. Think of it as the Star Wars extended universe. Is there any point where someone is creating that? Well, yes, everyone's always kind of building as they add, it's more of that and they've expanded it and it's growing, but it is a distinct part in and of itself. This is what you are. This is your subjectivity, the BWO inside of you that is being produced. It is not necessary that it is opposed to desiring machines. 
they work differently and the BWO is very happy to sort of play with desire machines in various ways. Uh, you may be able to affect that one way or another, not to hint at ATP, but this way that these operates ultimately conjointly are against the organism. This is the underlying sort of fun thing they start playing at is the way that re repelling and attraction work. Because as they continue, sorry, I'm gonna keep going because this is one large thought that they're having. When the BWO repels these organs, which is the mounting of a paranoiac machine. The, the BWO marks the limit of pure multiplicity formed by the organs themselves insofar as they constitute non-organic, non-organized multiplicity. This is the edge. It's, this, is, this is it. When it attracts mm -hmm. them and it fits itself over them, think of it as a fucking big ball of slime wandering over and then just jumping on top and like sitting. The, this thing suddenly starts wanting to grab onto the BWO, this underlying multiplicity. And when it attracts them to fit itself over them in the process of miraculating fetishistic machine, it doesn't totalize them, unify them in the manner of an organism. That's not the case. The organ's partial objects cling to the BWO and enter into a new synthesis of included disjunction and nomadic. Oh, it's here we start talking about the two ways the BWO works. It fits itself over and plays with them, and suddenly you have an included disjunction. You're, you're allowing difference to exist, even if it's nonsensical, and you're able to grow and change in a new direction. You have this nomadic reality. Or, or, or the other way, where suddenly you just allow that multiplicity to be, but you, you totalize it. You, you eliminate that sort of interesting side of it, um, and suddenly you're doing the paranoiac direction. So it's this whole, it's again, the whole thing, and I could keep going, I'll stop here. The whole thing is about the process of desiring machines, what they're producing, the BWO, how it interacts with them. And then on the other side of all that is all the other BWOs and desiring machines that have ever existed in time, not just alive right now, that have produced representation, words, conversations, ideas, thoughts, houses, whatever, all of that stuff is piled into the social milieu interacting and that ultimately creates pressures downwards on these desiring machines that they have to then connect into. Hmm. I hope that made sense. Wow. God damn it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh no, for sure. This is like, this is the fun stuff. This is the fun stuff. Um, does that make sense? Anyone else who I who knows more than me or is here? I'd love if anyone's yeah, like, oh yeah. That makes total sense to me. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to talk more about it. All right. All right. It's okay. Um anything else here that we would like to go over? We're coming, we're, we're nearing two hours. If you have questions, now would be the time because after this, um, we will be going into 4.5. I am going to start doing uh, weekly anti-Oedipus roundtables uh, where people can just come in and we can just talk about any of these things from the entire book. Uh, it'll probably be a little slower, um, but we have a lot of people joining who are earlier in the book and forcing people to get to where we're at, uh, especially this late, uh, is dickish. So we'll probably be changing the format for that you know, I'll probably try to do that once or twice a week, um, which would be fun. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll leave it open for a second for questions. Otherwise, I'll finish with the last paragraph before we move on. 
in the last paragraph in, in this uh, section? Yeah, I know. It's the bottom of 338. Doubtless these illusions. Because it's, uh, it's, it's kind of what finishes off my point I was making just now with uh, Strophe. Um, I'll continue because I think it's worthwhile. The, the paragraph finishes, I think, with the end of my rant, and I think it says it better than I possibly could. Um, because we are talking about uh, the illusions of representation and meaning that sit in society. Uh, doubtless, these illusions would not take hold if they did not benefit from a coincidence and a support in the unconscious itself that ensures the hold. We have seen what this support was primal repression as exerted by the body without organs at the moment of repulsion at the heart of molecular desiring production without this primal repression uh, a psychic repression in the proper sense the word could not be delegated in the unconscious by the molar forces and thus crush desiring production repression properly speaking profits from an occasion without which it could not interfere in the machinery of desire in contrast to psychoanalysis, which itself falls into the trap while causing the unconscious to fall into its trap, psychoanalysis follows, schizoanalysis follows the lines of escape and the machinic indices all the way to the desiring machines. If the essential object of the destructive task is to undo the Oedipal trap of repression, properly speaking, and all its dependencies, each time, in a way, adapted to the case in question, the essential aspect of the first positive task is to ensure the machinic conversion of primal repression, thereto in an adapted variable manner, which is to say, undoing the blockage or the coincidence on which the repression, properly speaking, relies, transforming the apparent opposition of repulsion, the body without organs, the machine's partial objects, into a condition of real functioning, ensuring this functioning in the forms of attraction and production of intensities, thereafter integrating the failures in the attractive functioning as well as enveloping the zero degree in the intensities produced and thereby causing the desiring machines to start up again. Such is the delicate and focal point that fills the function of transference in schizoanalysis, dispersing, schizophrenizing the perverse transference of psychoanalysis. Underneath all of it, this is the thing for the, 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 the first positive task. We'll get to the other one next week. I'm not jumping. These representations that are causing this, these things that we've now destroyed and found, they don't come from nowhere. They don't attach for nothing. You don't have the repression you have because someone just put it there accidentally or it fell into you. It, it's benefiting from a support structure. Things in society don't just happen out of nowhere. They benefit from a support structure. Your unconscious is the same way. So what is the support structure that allows it? And what can we do to ensure that it no longer feeds these fucked up illusions? And on top of it, maybe even... Can we restart them so they can disconnect, connect, and maybe even integrate the failures in this attractive functioning, begin changing how the BWO functions within you, and maybe give you an emancipatory moment? Ooh. That's the final sentence. I fucking love that last paragraph. It's so good in this. So good.
is every time this is quickly becoming more and more, it's like my favorite book. And I say that a lot, but man, every time I come in, this shit's just fire. I hope everyone understood at least four or five of the words I was using. Um, that would be lovely. Um, next week we will be getting fully into 4.5, which is the, um, second positive task. Um, the, the end of the book, this is it that everything kind of comes down to. We have all of these things we need to do, but what is the final bit? There is and I don't want to say an end to the process, but we get to find out what this final element is in the practice of destruction of the inner fascist, the outer fascist, the fascist within, the fascist in our friends, the fascist in our society. What is that last thing? And uh, I will not give you hints today. We will soon be reading it. Um, and I thank you all for joining, and I'm very excited to get to the next reading. Any last questions or notes before I sign off myself? Uh, can we end, uh, end the book with uh, with a um, with an answer to um, the question, "What is the good?" What is the good? What do you mean by that? I, th I think he's making a joke. It's not a God damn it! <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. God damn it! And, and you, you people with very dry senses of humor. Said, JK, you've gotten me, I think, three times now. Jack gets me all the fucking time, you people. I love it. Um, um, well, I, but I... Half serious. Go ahead. I was half serious. Uh, I, I think there's... Underneath it all, the, if there is a such thing as good in AO or in Deleuze's mind, it is when we allow the emergent. Like, that's... It's, it's, it's empowering that, connecting with that um, true lived experience and the emancipatory potential within that's, that's it. It's, it's not the destruction of everything. It's, it's not anti-capitalist. It's anti-capitalism. It's anti-capital as a productive source, sort of, but it's, it's getting back to that emergent within. Um, and it is, uh, I find it to be a deeply optimistic about the human condition. Um, deeply optimistic view of humanity as much as others may disagree with that. That the, uh, the, the uh, emergent, the uh, kind of a Nietzschean uh, desire of self-overcoming, of power, the power to overcome oneself? It, it's tied in. I think when I use it, I'm much more talking about um, the, well, it's tough to talk about something beyond the emergent or what the emergent is. Um, it's getting away from being told what is good and instead being able to experience it and find it through generalized experience. There's a tweet I quote a lot when I talk about this. Um, someone said, um, if it turned out that you were born, a person's born, and they just do a, one thing and then another randomly until they died, I'm perfectly fine with that. And it's kind of this why can't people just do whatever they want as the next thing splitting from one thing to another, to another. And that I think is the underlying good. If there is that emotion, not fully that sentence, but that idea that as we exist and as we grow and as we have our 
really lived experiences. We don't need necessarily these grand narratives or stories of what is good, bad, positive, what is gender, what is sex, what is any of this. These representations are the things that are causing the problems that they uh, claim to fix. The same way that Oedipus claims to emancipate us is ultimately enslaving us in a different way. These things are traps within traps, which is literally language they use um, uh, inside of that last paragraph as well. And I think there's a lot of power there in understanding how we ourselves are constantly falling into these traps, aside from a societal position, but also as an interpersonal one. Assumptions of other people, totalizing any one of us, totalizing those we come across. This is underlying, you are whatever you're producing at any given time emergently and giving people that freedom. And I think there's a power there. There we go. That's my little ramble. If anyone else wants to try, please. There is a kind of a philosophical, um, you know, um, journey or exploration in order to arrive at that kind of, um, you know, understanding of what representations are in the way of the emergent, right? Mm -hmm. I think part of the good is necessarily in this book, but you could go back to like Deleuze's writing on Spinoza and incorporate a perspective from AO into reading that book, trying to like form an ethical system for how to how to survive in this system and how to just keep moving. Yes. I think it's um Holland calls it uh he sees the next stage as uh, one of permanent revolution. And it is an interesting phrasing that I really like um that I think does apply for sure here. He does uh, mention uh, Spinoza and associates the BWO with uh, with the, um, the the eminent substance. Yeah, on page uh, 327, mm -hmm. body without organs is the eminent substance in most Spinoza's sense of the word. And the partial objects are like its ultimate attributes. Yes, Spinoza also mentions uh, the uh, emergence of power, and, you know. Um... Yes. I mean, I mean, even Hegel once said, I think the line is, um, there are philosophers, there are, uh, any anyone who's a philosopher is a Spinozist, some line like that. Um, deeply influential, but for Deleuze, Christ. I'm, I'm currently trying to drudge my way through um, Deleuze's, I think it's his second book on Spinoza. That's it's a tome, and it is. Um, it explicates some things I think I didn't uh, consider prior. It's pretty wonderful, so I, I recommend it. But yeah, um, for sure, a lot of this comes out of that. All right, I'm gonna bounce now. Uh, we're done. Thank you so much for coming, and I look forward to seeing you all next week uh, as we get into 4.5. And uh, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. Don't forget to head up and check the uh, events as new events get added. Um, it's worth uh, checking out constantly. But, uh, yep, thank you so much.